give some background of where I feel like God is kind of stirring my heart. Back in October, God really stirred in my heart for this message, our first love, that God wanted to cultivate something new and fresh, but that he wanted to prepare hearts before we got into this message series. And so my heart has been praying earnestly for this community, for each and every one of you, that God would prepare your hearts for what we're about to talk about over these next season. I don't know how many messages we're going to do about our first love, um, but God is calling us back to the first love. I really do feel that, that God is wanting us to spend a season of cultivating back that first love, that everything comes from the first love of Jesus. Our, our value as a church is to be spirit-led. We believe as a church that we are Holy Spirit-led, and we cannot do a single thing. I cannot do a thing without being spirit-led, and I want to always have that mandate. I don't want to get so spiritually grown or have enough knowledge that I don't need God. I always need God to gather, to shape and mold me all the time. So I feel like God wants to fan into flame a new passion for Jesus. That's what I believe, that he wants to just fan into flame. This is a simple message, but God wants to fan something fresh and new in you in 2020. And so if you have your Bibles, can you turn with me to Revelation 2? If you have your phone, turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. Last book of the Bible, chapter 2, and it'll be up on the screen as well. And so, in this passage of Revelation chapter 2, this is a letter to Ephesus, one of the big churches of the day, Um, and it says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, I write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So, just to pause there, this is... Uh, We supposedly believe John, who's on the island of Patmos, exiled because of his faith. And God had, uh, he had an encounter with the presence of God where God gave him revelation of um, his kingdom, his churches. And so this is the first letter to the church of Ephesus. Ephesus um, really was the great metropolis of Asia. It was the New York of America on the East Coast. Every road led to Ephesus. It was an amazing thing. It was home of uh, spirituality, um, temple prostitution. There was no morality whatsoever in Ephesus. Um, It was often said the philosophers of the day, when they would mention the name Ephesus, they would weep because of its immorality because of how broken it was. So it had a massive trade industry. It had all the money. It was a a wonderful city, but at the same time, it was incredibly broken. And there was lots of church house uh, ministries in that area. Timothy was the main guy there. And we believe that the the disciple John, who Jesus loved, resided later years there as well. So there is an amazing wealth of spiritual people in there. Paul spent three of his years in Ephesus because he believed so much in the transformation. And so when we see, um, like the New Yorks, the Californias that look so far from God, believe me, Ephesus is way worse, but God transformed it. And he did an amazing work in and through it. So this letter 
can you imagine with me, is being read. So one of the disciples or someone would have sat in a room very much like this. The disciples of Jesus, the followers of Jesus would have gathered in the room to hear this passage. And so would you imagine with me, as you sit here, this letter which is being written to you is being read right now. And so he says, I know your works. This is Jesus speaking to them through uh, John's uh, revelation. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. These guys would have been persecuted for Jesus. They would have been whipped. They would have been you know, punished in jail because of their belief in Jesus. And I know how you can bear with those who are evil. But I've tested those who call themselves apostles. In his previous letter, he talked about how there'll be sheep, uh, wolves in sheep clothing, trying to teach them other than who Jesus is. And you have not found them to be, you found them to be false. And I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sakes, and you have not grown weary. Isn't that a great commendation? I would be pretty happy if I was uh, these guys sitting in the front. It's like, yep, we've been doing a great work. God has just been blessing us through our work. We have been seeing transformation in the darkest of darkest areas. We have maintained our faith. This is awesome. But then he goes on and says this, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you first had. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come and I will remove your lampstand and from its place unless you repent. Knife to the heart right there. Could you imagine that? You've just been told... Great stuff. You're doing amazing works. Love all the people that you're helping, transforming. But yet, I have this against you. You've lost your first love. You've lost your first love. Would you pause him for a moment? This message series, I don't want to assume anything of anyone. And I don't want to say that this is what I feel God is for you. I would love for you to search your own heart this morning? How do you feel when you hear those words? Do you feel like you have lost your first love? Do you feel like you have lived a Christianity so far of late where it's just been the process of trying to get things done? That you've become so distracted, you've become so locked in the process, the journey of your life, trying to achieve the goals and things that you want, that you lost your first love? That rather than looking to the person that we're trying to be, you've made the process, the worship, an idol of your life. And so I feel as our first message within our first love series is to come back to the first love. I feel for us to grow in first love, we need to come back and check, have you lost your first love? See, my biggest fear as a pastor of you and for myself, it's, it's not that you guys have a moral failure or even I experience moral failure. That is not my biggest fear. My biggest fear is, the, is comfort, to experience comfort, to never live the life that you were called to, being out of the process of change but never really knowing God who changes us not giving ourselves fully to him. John Piper says this quote, which really hit home for me. The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, 
but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but the endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated video, but the primetime dribble of triviality we drink every night. For all the ill that Satan can do when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love is a piece of land, a yoke of oxen, and a wife. Just context, Luke 14, 18, 20, you can read that afterwards. It's a parable of where Jesus invites people into his kingdom, but they say, I'm too busy for you, Jesus. It's the land that I own. It's the oxen that I have. It's the job that I have. It's the wife. It's the family that I push God aside for. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. See, we live in a kind of James Dean culture, right? And what I mean by that is that we don't exert ourselves to any extreme. James Dean is the essence of cool, right? Growing up, everyone wanted to be like James Dean, leather jacket, never acting too like radical, just acting real chill, almost like the Fonz, right? Can you imagine the Fonz? It's like nothing was ever too extreme. He was pretty easy going. And so we have this kind of type of James Dean cool that we experience in church. Don't be too passionate or else you're seen a bit weird. Don't follow something with all of your heart. Don't show the full extent of your joy or pain. Just come in with a steady middle ground kind of action in church. Because if you're too happy, well, you better go sit over there because I don't want to sit next to too happy. But if you're too depressed, if you're too expressing the pain that you're feeling in your season, I don't want to know that either. I just want to be James Dean cool. I just want to live in the middle ground of not too much of either extreme. And so we say that, uh, you know, uh, we want to live a life where we drink the water like a marathon runner, right? Well, after a marathon runner has run the 20 miles, that he downs the water of the Spirit. But really what we say is, God, would you be the flavor creamer infused in my already full coffee drink? Can you just make it taste a little sweeter? My life's already pretty full. Could you just add a bit of flavor to it? Rather than being a Christian who says, you are all that I need. You're all that I want. I down you like someone who thirsts for water like never before. And so often we say we love God. We crave God. Yet what I do with my body, how I spend my money, that's me, God. Don't touch that. I don't want to give you all of me. I just want to be James Dean cool. See, the natural pull of the world is a nasty sedative. It pulls us into spiritual slumber. And as a church, it can get worse. We almost give permission for spiritual mediocrity. We say you don't have to be that radical Christian. And when we meet that radical Christian who lives a life and actually follows Jesus, prays radical prayers, loves people like no other, we call them super spiritual people. And we remove ourselves from them because we feel this uneasy comparison in our souls. Rather than being a place of challenge and stirring one another to go deeper with God, we okay one another's spiritual slumber. And so we feel awake because we're walking alongside each other as we sleep. We are becoming casual. 
And comparison is a wonderful tool if you want to feel spiritually alive. Because if you don't want to feel the pain of your own spiritual dryness, we just compare one another. We just find someone who's not quite as far in the spiritual walk, and we just compare our lives. Comparison is the natural ally to spiritual slumber. And so in Luke 18, Jesus tells this wonderful little parable um, in verse 10, and we know it well. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, those extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes and all that I get, but the tax collector standing off afar would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down from his house justified. Rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. See, by comparison, the outside view of the Pharisee, right, was he looked much more of a super spiritual person. He tithed, he fasted, he did all the actions from the outside that looked good, but he never experienced the presence of God. And that's what I fear within the church culture of America, that we can play lip service to the actions, do all the right things, read our Bible, pray fast, you know, give money, but yet never experience the transforming light of Jesus. We're really good at living the works like the Pharisee that we can say that we do all the things, but it actually it's the tax collector who humbled himself, understood his brokenness, and the light of God flooded his soul. It made him whole, and he experienced the love of God like nothing else. And so as we go back to the Revelation passage, it's interesting to me that when Jesus said, I've got this one thing against you. You forgot your first love. And because if you don't change your shift, I'm going to take my lampstand away from you. What an interesting thing to say to someone. Have you ever thought about that imagery, a lampstand? We know that God's light is his presence. Light and presence are often synonymous between the two of them. And so God's saying, I'm going to remove my presence from you. And when you remove something, it's because you don't need it anymore. They had got to such a Christianity where they had become so action-orientated that they had lost their first love and therefore did not need God's presence anymore. Isn't that scary that as a church that we could operate without the presence of God? That we could come to a place where we would just live action-orientated, live for other people, serve, but never love God. And God could remove his presence from the church, and I believe we could probably keep on going. Can we never be a church like that? That is my biggest cry as a leader, as a pastor. Above everything else, we must keep the love of God. I believe in action. I believe in helping one another. They go hand in hand. You can't be people who are just fatted cows, who just receive, fill me up every single Sunday and not do anything. Hear my heart. But I can't let us be a church that will just do the right actions and miss the transformation of God's light. And so do we check our own heart in this moment? 
Is the lampstand of God's presence in your heart right now? Do you have the searching light of Jesus in your life? Because the interesting thing about presence, we love the warm, fuzzy love of God's presence, right? It's the light. But there's another side, obviously, as this lampstand illustration of his presence talks about, that light exposes things. Light exposes things. So not only does it give you the warm, fuzzy love of God, but it also exposes the things within our hearts. And I would wager, if you have not experienced the presence of God for a while, if you have not felt his love, it's because also you have not experienced the exposing light of Jesus as well. That there is a truth that cuts away the things. See, we grow, right, as Christians. There is wheat, and Farmer John would also know about this, that when the wheat happens, the chaff as well grows with it. The stuff, the unwanted stuff that you don't want. Growth has everything. It has the good, the bad, and the ugly. And so often God wants to refine the, the, the chaff. He wants to cut away the things that we do not need. And that searching light of God does that. The searching light of God brings about growth within you. It cuts away, and you experience a presence of God that you have never experienced before. And so I ask you, have you experienced the searching light, the lampstand, or has the lampstand been removed from your heart, and you have just been living a life of action, of just doing the things that you've always done? Well, I've just done this. It's just what I've been told to do. When God is saying, come back to me. Come back. Let my lampstand sit in your heart. Let it be a searching light which cuts away the old, which refines you, which causes repentance within your heart. Don't just live the life that you always think I should live. And so in Ephesians, this is Paul writing to Ephesus. And so this is pre-revelation passage. And so I love this chapter 5, and the title is Walk in Love. In verse 8 it says, For the one, sorry, for at one, uh, for at one time you were in darkness, but now you are in sorry, I'll start again. For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are in the light of the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of lights are found in all that is good, right, and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in unfruitful works or darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. And this is the kicker. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise for the dead, and the Christ will shine on you. Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and the Christ will shine upon you. See, sometimes we feel pretty out of salts. We feel not alive, not awake. And I would, as I said in this passage, that the light of God searches our hearts, but it awakens us. It brings visible the things that need to be rectified, to be transformed in your life. There are three places which I find um, interesting in our walks. So nightclubs, public restrooms, retail fitting rooms. All three of these places have something in common. They have the right amount of darkness to function. 
in a nightclub, you would not want full-on blazing lights in that environment because you would not want to see what is going on in that room. So it is left very, very dark for good reason. Taking you back sometimes. Public restrooms. When I go into certain restaurants, it's incredibly dark. Because again, the amount of traffic that goes in and out of that restroom, I would not truly want to see what is in that room. All the other people going in and out of that. And when we look at uh, public fitting rooms, they have the perfect amount of light that that dress, that item of clothing looks amazing in that room. But when you take it home, it just doesn't look as good. It has the perfect amount of darkness to function. And I think often as Christians, we have that same ploy that we don't want to see all the things in our life and we want to keep a certain amount in darkness. We don't want to talk about that area of life that we struggle with. We keep it in dark and it never becomes visible. And God is saying, awake, O sleeper. Let my light permeate every part of your soul because that is where the love of Christ is. As I've said, if you haven't experienced the love of God or the presence for a while, I would bet because you have not experienced his searching, loving light that he wants to permeate every single area to transform you, to come alive, O sleeper. That's what I feel like God's saying to us as a church. Come alive. Come alive again. Let my searching light go through every part of your soul because you will feel alive. If you don't feel alive right now, it's probably because there's areas that God wants to permeate and arise and awaken you to who you are called to be. Three things just to quickly wrap up with as we go back to Revelation. Revelation in chapter 5. Verse 5, sorry. Chapter 2, verse 5. There are three calls to action that Jesus brings. First off, he says, remember. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. My first point, remember. Do you keep in front of you and remind yourself of your brokenness? So often I feel like as churches, we create a community of saints. Now hear me on this. We create this environment where we all supposedly are perfect Christians who do nothing wrong. We wear our mask and uh, we come with our Sunday hats. I hear it all the time because you're like, I better not say that in church, but I can say it outside of church. How many of you come across that part? What makes this building any more holy than just outside or your house? Nothing. Don't put your sacred and secular hats on. Be the same all the time. Don't even change the way you are around others around me. I hate that. As a pastor, I've discovered that people suddenly have their holy self because as soon as you mention you're a pastor, all words get filtered out and all kind of thoughts get filtered out and you don't get the real person anymore. And I'm tired of that. I would rather see the authentic broken self. This is a community of broken people. I am a broken person. But we create this culture that says that we are saints and therefore nullify the grace of God. And what I want us to do in our first action to letting the light of God come into our lives is to remember how broken you are. Remind yourselves that you are in need of a Savior. This is what the common ground is that we rest in this room. We all recognize that we need a Savior. We need someone to save us, to change us from the inside out. That is why we gather on a Sunday morning, not because it's what you should do because you're a saint, which you're not, 
that none of us in this room are saints, but yet we come with our brokenness and we recognize. We remind ourselves on a daily basis that I am in need of a Savior. I must remember of my broken state. I must remind myself that I am far from perfect and that the light of God shines on my brokenness. It reminds me that I need one another, that I cannot do this walk alone. Remember. Number two, repent. Tozer, A.W. Tozer says this, whoever would be indwelt by the Spirit must judge his own life for any hidden iniquities, any hidden sins. We must expel from his heart everything that is out of accord with the character of God. There could be no tolerance of evil, no laughing off of things that God hates. See, it's not through perfection we become light to the world. It's the confession that brings light to the world. Let me say that again. It is not your perfect lifestyle. It is not you living a perfectionist life that brings light to the world. But it is through your confession, through confession to one another, that we are illuminated by the light of God. The world is not looking for a perfectionist lifestyle. It's looking for people who are real. People generally know that they cannot do it by themselves, who are broken people, who come and say, I need a God. I need to repent and change. It's through our repentance, our confession, that the light of God will be able to shine brightest. That is where transformation comes. The daily practice of repentance, allowing God to illuminate your life, to be woke, as the kids say nowadays. To be woke. And if you don't know what that word is, look it up. If you have not felt his presence in a while, again, I ask, have you allowed his light to shine? Have you repented? Have you changed your mind? Have you reorientated? You were once walking this way, and you need to turn and walk. Have you let the light of God remind you of your brokenness so that you can repent? Have you done that? Let the light of God search you. My third and final point, return and do the works you first did. As he says in the passage here, return and do the things you first did. I find that when we remind ourselves, there's a fear. We remember that we are broken people. Know that the love of God, the grace of God abounds way more. He already knows your dark secrets. He already knows the things that you've hidden from you. When you think you're doing that action of whatever you're doing, that addiction, and you think you're doing it in private, he is watching every single moment of it. And he still loves you. He adores you. He wants to see that transformation and change in your life. And so as we repent, as we let the love of God remind us of who God has called us to be, a son and daughter of the Most High, that that is not our identity. And so we change the way that we walk. We must walk it out. A lot of times I meet Christians who repent every single Sunday or every day. God, I wish I didn't do this. Well, did you put action in place to actually stop you doing that? Did you reorientate your walk, your practices of following Jesus to actually change that? True repentance requires action. It requires you to transform your life. And so as we go to the story of Mary and Martha, I love Martha. I think Martha is an amazing person. I resonate with Martha. I'm a doer. I'd rather do for Christ than be with Christ because I feel lazy if I'm just sitting at his feet because I feel like I'm 
earn more respect, or whatever unhealthy thing that is. So I get Martha, I'm with Martha. But am I actioning myself to be a Mary, sitting at the feet of Jesus? Do I posture myself every single morning from that place of being at Jesus' feet? Does my whole being come from that place? How Am I going to return to the first love? Are you going to make a choice this year that every morning that you wake up, you're not just going to do like Martha does, but you're going to be like Mary? And that's why I think it's so incredibly helpful for us to have this habit of 21 days. And I love that we pause before we even start. That is the place of Mary, to stop and breathe in God's goodness. Don't even begin to say, God, I'm so sorry. Can I just walk back into your presence? No, lay there and say, God, I breathe in your goodness. I exhale the stuff. Start there. You are already made righteous through Jesus. You don't have to perform to get into his presence. That practice alone will transform the way you love other people, the way you love yourself. Return to the works you first did. Do you remember when you first got saved? Or was it a progression? Do you remember those moments where you came to Jesus and how good it felt when you had Jesus flowing through your heart and soul? Is that alive in you this morning? Can I ask you a question? Do you feel the love of God like never before? And so just in our reminder time, there's a song I want us to play just for a moment. And just where you're sitting at, I want you just to reflect on this message. First off, how's my first love? Just put, pause on that just for a sec. We'll get there in a second. Um, how's, how's my walk with God? Have I lost my first love? Or am I just in the actions and the process of doing things? Have I let the light of Christ shine upon me? Have I let it shine upon me? Are there areas that I've hidden back from God that I don't want him to touch? Or will this morning, will you turn to him and say, God, I'm opening my whole heart to you this morning. I want you to shine your light into my heart. And that refining light will cut back the things which are broken. And repent and say, God, I'm sorry for the way I've acted. I'm sorry that I've just made Christianity just a list of things that I do rather than who I be with. Everything pulls back to being with Jesus. That is our main goal, our main desire to be with Jesus. Have you lost being with Jesus? Is that no longer your priority? Is it the things that you do, your work, even your family, we can prioritize over? God flows through everything. Bring him back into everything that you do. And so, remember that you're a broken person in need of Jesus. Repent this morning and return back to your first love. I love these lyrics of this song. I want to be tried by fire, purified. You take whatever you desire, Lord, here's my life. And the bridge, so clean my hands, purify my heart. I want to burn for you, only for you. Take my life as a sacrifice. I want to burn for you, only for you. I tell you this morning, if you want to live a life and life to the full in Jesus, it requires some burning. It requires some refining. It requires some repentance. And so I want to create just some moments here. As this song plays, we're just going to lower the lights. 
And we're just going to, between you and God, this is between you and God. How's your heart doing this morning? Are you on fire for Jesus? Is he your burning desire? Do you want to be with him always? Or has it just become a things that we do? And so, Lord, I just pray with every head bowed, eyes closed. Lord, as we just go into this moment of rest, Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, of your soft touch to come and touch every single heart. Would you illuminate where change needs to come in our hearts? Would you illuminate again, Lord, the areas of where we first loved? Would you rekindle fire in our hearts this morning? Let this song minister to our hearts. Lord, we want to burn for you again. Lord, in 2020, we want to burn for you. And that means cutting away some of the old cutting away the things that once were good, but now are dead. Lord, we just breathe you in right now. In Jesus' name, amen.